You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 127 by Rudolf Steiner, translated by Matthew Barton, 16 lectures entitled The Mission of the New Spirit Revelation, The Pivotal Nature of the Christ Event in Earth Evolution. This is Lecture 11, entitled Original Sin and Grace, given in Munich on the 3rd of May, 1911. Since karma has determined we should meet here instead of in Helsinki, where the Course was supposed to begin. Let us start with a brief reflection on spiritual scientific themes, and then perhaps members of the audience can ask any questions which arise for them, and so extend this improvised evening event. Let us perhaps first consider a few little gleams that illumine our spiritual movement if we consider our human evolution in connection with the Earth's evolution. As we have sometimes done, let us shed a particular and different light on various things that we know already. It is possible that things that have made a deeper impression on you in the religious sensibility of humanity may have elicited questions in you. You may have asked yourselves how themes in humanity's religious feelings or the themes apparent in other kinds of worldviews, relate to our own deeper views as expounded in spiritual science. I want to point at the outset to two important concepts, despite the fact that modern people today believe such things to be very outmoded, to the two terms sin, in quotes, and grace, in quotes. We all know that these words, sin and grace, are hugely significant for the Christian worldviews, that they play the greatest role there. However, certain anthroposophists have become accustomed, from, as they believe, the perspective of karma, to not reflecting very much upon such ideas, especially not reflecting upon these terms in their broader sense. Now, this disregard of such reflection leads to less than beneficial consequences since it hinders them from discerning, say, the profounder aspects of Christianity, indeed the profounder aspects of worldviews in general. These terms, sin, original sin, grace, actually have a much deeper background than people usually think. This is no longer discerned today, simply because almost all traditional religions in the world almost all, more or less, in the outward forms in which they now exist, have erased their true depths so that scarcely anything that is now promulgated in any particular religion bears a resemblance any more to what actually underlies the terms employed. Behind the words sin, original sin, and grace, the whole evolution of the human race, in fact, lies hidden. We have become accustomed to dividing this evolution into two parts, a descending trajectory from the most ancient times of human evolution up to the appearance of Christ on earth, 
and an ascending one, beginning with the advent of Christ and passing on into the most far distant future. Thus we see the coming of Christ as the greatest event, not only in our human evolution, but in our whole planetary evolution altogether. Why must we place this Christ event at the very midpoint of world evolution as something so extraordinarily significant? We must do so for the simple reason that the human being, as we know, has descended from spiritual heights into material, physical depths, and because he must again rise, in turn, from material, physical depths to spiritual heights. Thus we are concerned with the human being's descent and reascent. And in regard to our soul life, we characterize this descent of the human being in more detail by saying this. When we look back to very ancient times, we find that in those eras, human beings were able to lead a life of spirit that basically had far greater affinity with the divine than nowadays. That human beings stood closer, in a sense, to the divine spiritual world. That more divine spiritual life shone into the human soul. We should not forget that it became necessary for humanity to descend into the material physical world. Because in those ancient times when people stood closer to the divine spiritual realm, at the same time the whole awareness of our soul was a duller and more dreamlike one. It was a less sharp-focused consciousness, but pervaded more by divine spiritual thoughts, feelings, and will impulses. Our closeness to divine spiritual reality at the same time means we are less clear, more like a dreaming child. We descended as we acquired the power of judgment necessary for physical life, the power of reason. And in doing so, we distanced ourselves from divine spiritual heights and instead became inwardly clearer, found a more stable point of reference within ourselves. And now, in order to work our way upward again with this inner anchorage of our soul life, we must fill it with what occurred through the Christ impulse. The more we do so, the more we will ascend again into the divine spiritual world, not now arriving there as a dreaming being with dull awareness, but as one whose consciousness can look with clear focus into the world. We have often spoken of this from various angles. Now, if we examine human evolution in more detail, we also know that we became able to look into the physical sense world with a clear, bright, rational gaze, solely because of the human eye, capital. This, though, was the last aspect to develop in the course of human evolution. Following previous evolution of the astral body, before that the etheric body, and still longer ago the first rudiments of the physical body. Today, therefore, we will recall that a first evolution of the astral body preceded actual eye evolution as such. If we survey various things that we have heard over some time, though, we must be clear that before we could pass through our eye evolution, we underwent an evolution in which we possessed only these three aspects physical body, etheric body, astral body. 
Nevertheless, human beings were already heading toward I-evolution. They lived within this evolutionary trajectory, were waiting, in a sense, for the later addition of the I. If we keep this in mind, we can gain an idea that preparatory developments must have occurred with human beings and their whole evolution before they could actually assimilate the I, as it were, evolutionary developments preceding the I. This is very important. For if human beings already underwent an evolutionary process before assimilating the I, we cannot ascribe to them the evolution they passed through then in the same way as we must ascribe to them what they subsequently underwent in possession of the I. After all, we know of creatures who do not possess an I in the human sense, the animals. They possess only a physical body, etheric body, and astral body. Because of this nature of theirs, the animals compel us to recognize something very particular about them, which we all do recognize indisputably, if we think at all rationally. However angrily a lion attacks us, say, we cannot say, as we can of a human being, that the lion is wicked. We can be wicked. We can commit crimes, can act immorally. But we cannot say this of any animal. No animal acts immorally. This is very important. Even if we do not reflect upon this, we can see that the difference between human beings and animals is due to the fact that the latter possess only the physical, etheric, and astral body, while the human being also possesses an eye. Now, before we assimilated the eye, we passed through a process of evolution in which our highest aspect was the astral body. Did something occur here with humankind that we should regard in a different light from what we presently see in the animal kingdom? Yes. We must recognize that even though we once were constituted a physical body, etheric body, and astral body, we were certainly not like the animals of today. We were never animals, but passed through this stage at other periods when we were constituted a physical, etheric, and astral body, in periods when the animals in their present form did not yet exist, when quite different conditions existed on the earth. What occurred at that time with the human being? We can characterize it by saying that human beings did not yet possess the I, and so we cannot assign to them properties we assign to ourselves in distinction to the animals. We must judge the realities that issued from them differently from the way we judge such things today, now that we possess an I. In this last transitional stage of evolution, where humankind stood at the threshold of receiving the I, the Luciferic influence was still at work. While we cannot judge the humankind of those times as we would today, we must nevertheless see them differently from the animal kingdom. Lucifer was urging himself upon humankind. As yet, without full moral responsibility, the human being could not choose either to follow Lucifer or not. But Lucifer was still able to draw human beings into his net, 
as it were, in a way that differs from the nature of our animals today. Thus the temptation of Lucifer falls precisely at the time when humankind stood at the threshold of receiving the eye. Thus a mode of human action predating our current eye evolution nevertheless casts its shadow over this whole eye evolution. So, who really lapsed into sin? Not human beings, insofar as they are eye-beings. Through Lucifer, human beings became sinners with a part of their being, with which, basically, they can no longer be a sinner nowadays. Today, we possess our eye. Thus, back then, the human being became a sinner with his astral body. This is the radical difference between any crime we may sully ourselves with nowadays and the sin that entered human nature in those ancient times. In succumbing to the temptation of Lucifer back then, it was the human being's astral body that succumbed. This was, therefore, a deed of pre-I evolution, a quite different kind of deed from all those we could have done once the I, even in its very first intimations, had entered our nature. Thus human beings committed a deed before the I entered their nature, and yet this deed casts its shadow upon all subsequent times. Human beings were able to commit this deed of hearkening to the temptation of Lucifer before they assimilated the I, but the influence of this deed would continue to affect them for all subsequent times. Why? Because our astral body became culpable before our eye evolution began. This created conditions where in succeeding incarnations, in each one really, we had to sink lower into the physical world. This deed, unfolding still at the astral level, was the impetus for our descent. In consequence, human beings were set upon a declining path and with their eye followed forces in their nature that originate from their pre-eye evolution. How did these forces now express themselves in human evolution? We know from previous lectures that we develop our physical body until roughly the age of six or seven, then the etheric body from seven to fourteen, and our astral body from the age of 14 to 21, and so on. We know that with development of our etheric body, we enter upon a stage where we can reproduce our own kind. Let us leave aside entirely the same phenomenon in the animal world at present. We know that having developed our etheric body, we can then reproduce our own kind. This is connected with the fact that we have fully developed the etheric body. If you reflect on this a little, and you don't need to be clairvoyant to understand this, you can see that this full development of the etheric body must at the same time bring with it the full capacity for us to bring forth our own humankind. In other words, as we continue to develop into our twenties, We will not acquire new or further capacities to reproduce our own kind. It cannot be said that at the age of 30 we will in any way augment or add to this ability to reproduce our own kind. 
Once the etheric body has been fully developed, we possess all the capacities we need to reproduce. So, what is added later? Through what we later assimilate, nothing more of our human nature is added, for we must already possess the full capacity to bring forth our own kind. Nothing more can be acquired or achieved in this way once we have fully developed the etheric body. So, what is added? Yes, the only capacity we later acquire in relation to our reproductive powers is that we mar the full scope of our ability to bring forth our own kind. Whatever we can still acquire after the full development of the etheric body cannot enhance the power to bring forth our own kind, but only diminish it. Qualities, powers we acquire after sexual maturity has been attained do not, in any way, help to improve the human race, but only degrade it. This is due to the effect of the impulse I described that originates in the astral body's culpability. Once the etheric body is fully developed, thus roughly from the age of 14, the astral body continues to develop, but it harbors the influence of Lucifer. And what passes back into the development of the etheric body can only induce a decline in etheric forces that involve the ability to reproduce. And this means that what the astral body became through the temptation of Lucifer is an ongoing reason for the degeneration of the human race, for our decline. In succeeding incarnations, therefore, the human being continually declined. And the further back we go into Atlantean times, the more we would find higher forces of the human physical matrix than in later eras. This impulse produced in the astral body by the temptation of Lucifer therefore came to inform heredity, to which it brought increasing degeneration. The sin we acquire with our eye may work back upon the astral body, but can only come to manifestation in karma. The sin we brought upon ourselves before we possessed an eye contributes to the continual decline and degeneration of the whole human race. This sin became an inherited attribute. And just as it is true that no one can inherit a higher spiritual quality from their forefathers, cannot inherit attributes, but must gain them through education, since no one is clever by virtue of having a clever father, but only by developing their own abilities, no one has yet inherited a gift for mathematics from their ancestors, nor other kinds of thought. So likewise, it is true that the influence passing back to the etheric body from the astral body, all that we acquire in such a way that it works back upon the etheric body, contributes only to an erosion of the capacities of the human race. And this is the true meaning of original sin. This original sin persisting still in the astral body gradually reproduced itself and came to inform human inherited attributes which at that time were already rooted in human physical degeneration, leading to the human being's descent and decline from spiritual heights. Thus the influence of Lucifer 
brought a continuing impulse that can indeed be correctly termed original sin. What entered the astral body through Lucifer is passed on from generation to generation. And there is no more apt term than original or inherited sin for what truly underlay the descent of humanity into the material, physical world. But we should not regard this inherited sin in the same way as other sins in ordinary life, which we attribute entirely to ourselves, but as a human destiny, as something which cosmic dispensation inevitably laid upon us since we had to be led downward, not only to make us worse than we were, but to awaken in us forces to work our way upward again, to find these powers within our own being. We must therefore regard the fall of humanity as something intrinsic to human destiny. We could never have become free beings if we had not been pushed downward. We would instead have had to blindly follow the cosmic order, harnessed by it. And we must now in turn work our way upward again. Now, nothing is ever without its opposite pole. We wouldn't have a north pole if we didn't have a south pole. and Likewise, this sin in the astral body inevitably has its complementary pole. Though we cannot ascribe this to ourselves in the modern sense, cannot speak of any moral failings on our part, it is our destiny to be filled with Lucifer. In a sense, we can do nothing about this and must even be grateful for this dispensation. On the one hand, this is right. We can do nothing about it. We had to lay upon ourselves something for which we cannot bear full responsibility. This contrasts with something in human evolution that relates to it, like the North Pole to the South. This sin passed down through generations, an influx of culpability in us, for which we are not truly to blame, must be complemented by the potential to ascend again, again without our culpability. Just as we had to fall without culpability, so we must also be able to ascend again without our culpability, or in this case without fully meriting it. We fell, but it was not our fault. And so we must likewise rise again, now without deserving it. This is the necessary counterpole. Otherwise we would have to remain below in the physical material world. Thus in the same way that a culpability necessarily marks the outset of our evolution, so the end of our evolution must be marked by a gift that we receive without deserving it. These two things inevitably belong together. Why this is so can best be understood in the following terms. What we do in ordinary life proceeds from the impulses of our feelings, our emotions, drives, and desires. Someone gets angry, say, and acts out of anger, or feels love and acts out of this sentiment of ordinary love. There is only one word that can describe everything that we do in this way. You will all acknowledge, I am sure, that what a person does when he feels passion or anger when he loves ordinarily cannot be captured in abstract concepts, cannot be defined. You would have to be a very dry scholar to wish to define in words what underlies any human action. 
Yet we do have a word that describes what is going on in us when we do something in ordinary life, and that is the word, in quotes, personality. This is a word that encompasses at once all those undefined things I'm referring to. Once we have grasped a person's personality, then we may also be able to judge why he felt this or that passion, this or that desire, and so on. All these things have a personal character, arising from our drives, desires, passions, and so on. But in living and acting out of these drives, desires, and passions, we so easily get entangled in physical, material life. Our eye here immerses itself in the seething flux of the physical, material world. It is unfree when it follows the dictates of anger, desire, passion, and love too in the ordinary sense. It is unfree because it is bound by these emotions. But if we consider our modern era, we will acknowledge that there is something different now which did not exist really in older times. Only those who have no knowledge of history and judge everything by a measure that goes no further than their own noses can claim that in ancient Greece, for instance, qualities were already present that had been prized for the past century and more, such as freedom, equality, and fraternity, moral ideals framed in words that underpin our principles and statutes. For instance, in its guiding principles, the Theosophical Society upholds, quote, a common bond of fraternity without distinctions of faith, nation, class, or gender, close quote. These ideals are ones we pursue in the modern era, But this was not the case in ancient Egypt, Persia, or anywhere in the ancient world in the sense in which we speak today. In our modern age, we feel it is beholden upon us to follow such ideals, and yet our enactment of these principles of freedom, equality, fraternity, and so on, has a rather abstract character for most people. Most people's grasp of freedom, equality, fraternity, and so forth is couched only in abstract definitions, since these ideals do not affect them personally very much. Though these ideals can be used to appeal to human passions, they can easily awaken in us a sense of aridity. These abstract ideas do not yet touch us personally. They do not yet possess the full-blooded feeling of personal life. And we have high regard for individuals in whom the idea of freedom does emerge and pour forth with primary elemental power in the way we know from anger, passions, or worldly love. The ideas that we regard as the greatest moral ideals leave most people more or less untouched. And nevertheless, this marks the beginning of a great development. Just as we gradually immersed ourselves in the ocean of physical materiality, developing what we call personality, and acting under the influences of passions, drives, and desires, so likewise we must begin to live our way upward into these abstract ideas with our personality, not merely relate to them in the abstract as we do at present. With the primary elemental power with which we see that some action or other erupts from hatred or love in the mundane sense, 
the most spiritual ideals will also spring forth. Human beings will work their way upward to higher spheres with their personality. But this requires something else. In immersing ourselves with our eye in the surging flux of physical material life, we discover our personality, we find our hot blood, our surging drives and desires in the astral body. We immerse ourselves in our personality. But now, we must raise ourselves into the realm of moral ideals without this being abstract. We must ascend to the spirit, and in doing so, something personal must pulse toward us in the same way as happens when we immerse our eye in our hot blood, our drives and passions. We must ascend without succumbing to the abstract. In ascending to the spirit in this way, how do we embrace something personal at the same time? How can we develop these ideals in such a way that they acquire personal character? There is only one means to do so. In spiritual heights, we must be able to draw toward us a personality that is inwardly personal, as the personality below in the flesh is. What personality is this that we must attract to us as we seek to ascend into the realm of spirit? It is Christ. Just as someone might say in the obverse of the Pauline phrase, quote, not I, but my astral body, close quote, so Paul says, quote, not I, but Christ in me. And in this way shows that by virtue of Christ living within us, abstract ideas acquire a very personal character. This, you see, is the significance of the Christ impulse. Without it, we would arrive at abstract ideals, all kinds of ideals of moral powers and such like, would come to what many historians describe as historical ideas, in quotes, which can neither live nor die because they possess no creative power. In speaking of ideas in history, we should be aware that these are dead, abstract concepts, which really are not equal to actual periods in history. Only life itself is. And we need now to develop and work our way toward a higher personality. This is the Christ personality, which draws us toward it, and which we take up and assimilate into ourselves. Thus we reascend to the Spirit, not only speaking of the Spirit, but assimilating the Spirit in the living personal form that we encounter in the events of Palestine, in the mystery of Golgotha. Under the influence of the Christ impulse, we reascend. The only way in which we can come to invest abstract ideals with ever more of a personal character is to allow our whole life of spirit to be pervaded by the Christ impulse. But just as we took upon ourselves the culpability we call original sin before the I evolved, and thus possess something that cannot be laid entirely at our door, so the fact of Christ's entry into the world and the capacity to draw Christ toward us cannot be celebrated as ours either. What we do, what we try to do, to come closer to the Christ, is already implicit in our eye, is something 
we have merited. But that Christ is there, that we live upon a planet where Christ walked abroad, that we live in an era after these events occurred, is not something we have earned or merited. Thus what flows out from the positive, the living Christ, to bring us back up again into the world of spirit, is outside and beyond our eye. It draws us upward to it, without any ability on our part to achieve it, as little as we can do anything about the guilt that we might say accrued to us without our culpability. Through the fact that Christ lived on earth, we gain the strength to re-ascend again, as little merited as the culpability that burdened us without our guilt. Neither of these, you see, have anything to do with the personal realm in which the eye lives, but instead with what precedes and succeeds the eye. We have often stressed that humankind evolved from a condition in which it possessed only a physical, etheric, and astral body, and that we evolve further by transforming our astral body, thereby making this astral body into manas. Just as we harmed our astral body through original sin, we remedy it again through the Christ impulse. Something flows into it that heals it as much as it was harmed before. This is the equivalence which we can truly call grace. Grace is a term equivalent to original sin, the redress for it. Thus the influx of Christ into the human being, the possibility of becoming one with Christ, the capacity to say like Paul, not I, but Christ in me, at the same time expresses everything we understand by the term grace. And so we can say that we do not misconceive the idea of karma if we acknowledge both original sin and grace. Insofar as we speak of the idea of karma, we are speaking of the reincarnation of the I in various lives on earth. Karma is inconceivable without the presence of the I. In speaking of original sin and grace, we are speaking of impulses that underlie the surface of karma, that lie within the astral body. Indeed, we can say that the nature of human karma only arose because we brought original sin upon ourselves. Karma runs through many incarnations, and preceding and succeeding it are things that initiate it and redress it once again, beforehand original sin, and afterward the full success of the Christ impulse, the arrival of complete grace. And so we can say that from this perspective too, spiritual science does indeed have a great and significant mission in the present age particularly. For as true as it is that humanity has only recently come to acknowledge abstract ideals at all, as true as it is that we can develop what we may call the abstract ideals of freedom and fraternity, it is equally true that a time must soon come when these ideas are no longer merely abstract ideals, but approach us as living powers. Humankind has passed through a point of transition in which it could encompass and formulate abstract ideals, but now it must progress 
to a stage where these ideals can come to personal expression. It must move onward to enter the new temple. We stand at its threshold, and people will be taught that what works downward from spiritual heights are not mere abstracts, but living powers. When they begin to recognize what awaits their vision in the next epoch of evolution, when they cease thinking, quote, how good I am, close quote, but when, instead, they begin to discern the Christ as a living being, when their etheric vision reveals to them the living power of Christ, whom they will perceive in the etheric body, as we know from the middle of this century, the twentieth century, certain people will gain this capacity of vision. Then they will know that what they perceived for a period in the form of abstract ideas are in fact living beings, living beings alive within our evolution. The living Christ who first appeared in physical form and who at that time could only impart himself to people in this form so that they could believe in him, even if they were not his contemporaries, will reappear in renewed form. Then no proof will be needed that he lives, for those who can prove it will be present, those who can themselves experience in a kind of mature beholding, even without special schooling, that the moral powers of the world are living realities, not merely abstract ideas. And so we see that our thoughts cannot lead us upward into real worlds of spirit, because they are devoid of life. Only when these thoughts no longer appear to us as our thoughts, but as testimonies to the living Christ who will appear to humankind, will we properly understand these thoughts. Then, as we become a personality through submerging ourselves with the I in lower spheres, we will likewise become a personality by ascending to spiritual heights. Modern materialism fails to discern this. It can only grasp the existence of abstract ideals of goodness, of beauty, and so on. That living powers exist that raise us through their grace is something that still awaits comprehension. We discern this through spiritual scientific schooling as the renewed impulse of Christ. If we no longer regard our ideals only as ideals, but through them find the path to Christ, then we uphold and continue Christianity in accord with spiritual science. Christianity then enters a new stage and ceases to be mere preparation. It will show that it contains the very greatest riches for all coming eras. And those who think that Christianity is always endangered when it develops and changes will see how wrong they are. They are those of little faith, who grow anxious if they are told that Christianity contains still greater glories than have yet been conveyed. Those, on the other hand, whose ideas of Christianity have grandeur, are the ones who know that Christ is indeed with us always, that is, that He continually reveals new things to us, and that it is right to return to the source of Christ. In this way, Christianity lives as something greater than people realize, bringing forth from itself ever new and more living creative realities. Those who keep saying this is not true Christianity because it cannot be found in the Bible 
that those who claim anything different are heretics should be referred to the passage where Christ says, quote, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. Close quote. He did not say this to show that he was withholding something from them, but that he will reveal himself from era to era in ever new forms, and he will reveal himself through those who seek to understand him. Those who deny this themselves fail to understand the Bible or Christianity. They fail to understand how to hearken to the Christian admonition in these words, quote, I have much more to say to you, but prepare yourselves so as to learn to bear it, thus to gain understanding of it, close quote. True Christians will in future be those who hear what the first Christians, the contemporaries of Christ, were not yet able to bear. The true Christians will be those who have the will to let ever more of Christ's grace flow into their hearts. Those who obstinately defend themselves against this grace will say, quote, No, go back to the Bible. Only the letter is true. Close quote. And in saying this, they will deny the words that kindle the bright light within Christianity itself. The words that we should take properly to heart, quote, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. Close quote. Things will go well for humanity if it can bear to hear more and more of such things. Then it will become ever riper for the ascent into spiritual heights, and Christianity exists to pave the way for that. The end of Lecture 11